John Cordero has said that the privilege of serving the communities at large, these men, their families and victims as an ambassador for Christ, continues to be an honor beyond words. My name is Andy Stein, and this is Surmount, a conversation with people who have worked past the trials and tribulations of life on the registry. I spoke with John in October of 2017. Kids are wired for love. They need the affirmation of a mother and father. Uh, they need that guidance. John Cordero is a pastor running a community-safe residential reentry program for sex offenders. They have grown from a fledging pioneer in sex offender reentry to a well-respected organization recognized as experts in sex offender residential reentry. John and I met at the NARSAW conference, it was RSOL then, in Atlanta in 2016. So tell me about this reentry center that you have, John. Well, it's certainly much different than it was when we started out almost 13 years ago. Um, that was kind of an interesting story there where I was just getting my feet wet in this community and uh, had met a gentleman who had been working with uh, reentry and uh, worked a lot with homeless people and you know guys coming out of prison that needed a place. And his was much, much more of a uh, transitional facility. And there was a house that came for rent just down the, the uh, street from where he already had a couple other houses. And I said, hey, have you seen that house? And he goes, yeah. He said, I was thinking about going to look at that. And I said, let's go, let's go look at it together. And we did, and I offered to go ahead and uh, get him in the door, pay his first month's rent, and you know, secure the property so he could expand. And he called me back a little while later, and he said, hey, Brother John, he says, could you help us out? Um, you know, we need some help getting utilities turned on. And, and I just, being the businessman that I am, I said, you know, friend, if you can't afford to turn the utilities on, you probably shouldn't expand right now. And uh, he says, well, you know, he says, I was thinking you probably ought to open a house. And I went home. I said, well, honey, it looks like we just opened up a reentry home. We didn't have a stick of furniture. We didn't have a policy, a procedure. We didn't have a clue. But there was so much need, and I had been involved in the community enough, uh, the reentry community that was at hand, that uh, heck, even before we were ready, uh, I already had federal parole officer come out and say, you know what, we need more places. You know, I have a black hat and a white hat, and I, I know how to use both, and uh, I'll, I'll wear that white hat as long as you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, and uh, hope I never have to put the black hat on. And so we, we opened up, and there was this unwritten rule, uh, a policy by the local supervisory agency that you could have no more than two sex offenders in any one residence. And so I was like, okay, well, we'll just go ahead and keep it a mix, and you know, we'll, we'll just try and honor that so we don't step on any toes and start with any problems. And next thing I know, within two months, I had five registered sex offenders in the home and uh, expected things to come crumbling in. Long and short, uh, I was fortunate enough in the very beginning to have uh, a PO, a parole officer, come in and say, I like what you're doing. This makes a lot more sense for us to be able to have one place to to come to visit these people and, and have one voice to go to to ask questions. And and so, you know, I was fairly encouraged, but uh, trust me, there were some challenges along the way. How many people uh, do you have at your facility? Well, presently, Andy, we have... Um, 
26 right now in staff. And so uh, we have on-site managers that have come through our program and who've captured the vision and, and uh, understand what the, uh, the heart of the ministry is, which we're not transitional. We're, we're a um, transformation center. We're not a halfway house. We don't want to do things halfway or, or half you know what. So we, uh, we raised guys up from the inside, and we have on-site managers and staff that have grown up through, most of whom uh, have day jobs, and then they're you know, running our curriculum and, and uh, you know, involved in staff meetings and involved in uh, interventions and the you know, types of things that we have to do to make sure our community is safe from the inside out. So... I'm, I'm trying to I'm trying to picture this. Um, so you have twenty something people staying. Is this what I mean? Is this a, a, you know a small mansion? Is it just a normal house with four people in a room? Good question. Uh, we the first thing we say to a guy when he when he is released and comes to us is we say welcome home and welcome to the ministry. We have homes. Uh, in Fort Worth, where we're located, the, uh, the zoning is such that they you can have up to five unrelated people in any one residence. And so uh, we happen to have duplexes, and we uh, are able then to have 10 people under one roof. And we ha- also have a, a local church that uh, acts as a, a covering for us, and they allow us to use their facilities during the week to have uh, everybody in the ministry in there for uh, training sessions and uh, for our fellowships and uh, first 90 days if somebody comes out we'd like them to attend that church just so we get to know who they are and where they're at and, and uh, how we can best serve them but yeah it's it's home style we want these guys to uh, to get involved on on ownership level not uh, not just another place to serve time, but a place where they can actually use that time to serve them and, and help others as well. And these are people that are post, uh, you know, they're not on, they're under supervision, but they're not under any sort of early release to be received by you. Is that right? Yeah, it's, it's you know, it's not a state program. We don't receive any funding or anything okay. of that nature. What, what we are is we're on the state's alternative housing resource list, which means they you know, they have an application, they come out and inspect us and make sure we have X amount of square foot per, per man, per room. And so we have, you know, smaller bedrooms. you got two guys, uh, larger bedrooms, three. Um, we, <laughs> we always uh, wish we had more room, but uh, I'm sure there are plenty of families out there that are living in homes they wish were larger. <laughs> so, Certainly. You know, and it's certainly a lot better than where they came from. And, and you know, and not everybody that comes to us uh, comes directly out of prison. Uh, we have set, had some people that have uh, come to us uh, as a mandate from the courts as almost a pre-sentencing uh, evaluation period. So they'll come for a year and they'll go through treatment while they're there and they'll go through our program and we'll give them monthly evaluations and such and and that's that's actually been uh, very favorable for those who've come to us and, and come through the process. And we also have people who discharge. You know, they've got you know, done day for day, come off the backside, and uh, they know that they want to be in a community where they're going to learn how to live, and they're going to have accountability, and they're going to have support, and they're going to be able to get their feet under them and actually 
um, you know, do what they need to do so they can actually be somebody of value to the community and, and actually have something to offer their families. So many of them, you know, they come out, they, they left children behind and, and such. And so they realize that you know, even if they did well while they're incarcerated, they, they did, that's not the real world. I'm, I, I just have to tell you, I'm completely fascinated by what you're doing because we keep running into problems in my area where people have no place to go. Uh, there are no programs available. You know, there's only a couple places. I think there might only be one facility in my state that takes SOs. It's yes. I, you know, and so people call and they say, Hey, so-and-so needs an address. And I, I got nothing. I got nothing for them. There's nothing I can do to help them at all. No, it's, it is, it, it, it hurts to hear you share that. I'm not surprised. It's not the first time and I get calls from all over the nation with people, you know, looking back. Now we've been doing this. We're in our 13th year. This year is the first time that we've had an interstate compact that's actually come to fruition right now. Just last week we had a guy come from Illinois and that's the first time an interstate compact has been permitted. So, and we, you know, we don't have any control of that. We've always put someone through the application process and had them accepted, sent them all the paperwork. And, and, um, I don't know if it's because other States are not willing to release or if Texas doesn't want to receive, but, um, anyways, but, it is a very difficult situation. And most people, uh, most of the time, the, the reason is that, uh, from my, and this is my opinion and my observation, is that um, we find that, that those people who are serving the public as uh, supervisory agencies and those who are involved in uh, laws and, and politics, they are no different than most of the folks out there. They have... Uh, really limited resources in regard to what they get for information about sex offenders. They believe the lies that sex offenders have a high rate of recidivism. They, they, um, they are working for a public that has already made up their mind on what they believe. And so in order to work with the public, they have to basically uh, work with what the public believes, if that makes sense. Yes. And so even if, even if I can sit down with a legislator, a senator, if I can sit down with a parole, uh, supervisor, uh, and have a, a, you know, a heart to heart, face to face, facts for facts conversation, it still comes back to, yeah, but. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I always tell them, yeah, anything after but is crap. Right. And so you know, when are you going to start, when are you going to start, uh, serving people the truth. You know, your, your role and responsibility is to serve people uh, in a way that protects them. And, you know, if we continue to, to do things the way we are, we're, we're basically establishing the false security. You know, my whole thing is about prevention. And, you know, we spend so much time uh, proliferating uh, just stupid as far as the media goes and politicians about the you know, registration, the risks involved. And, you know, it's a, uh, you know, it's like when you have these judges who are up for re-election, you always see that they have uh, stiffer sentences for sex offenders and that type of thing. Until we get away from that, where people aren't worried about losing their job or um, being ostracized themselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's something to think about. 
anyways. Yeah. Rambling on. Oh, no, it's okay. Uh, So I was doing some reading, and I wonder if you could expand on something. I believe then, as I do now, that children need the positive influence of both of their parents in their life. And that's something that uh, that I saw that you had said. And I wonder if you could uh, could go on on that. Absolutely. I think you'd find that. Uh, I believe I wrote that in uh, a book that I had the privilege of co-authoring with uh, John Harrelson called Unprecedented, how sex offender laws are impacting our nation. And <clears throat> I'll go for my own baseline because uh, I am a former sex offender and I, and I truly had a victim and um, I went through this process with a natural daughter that I had to leave behind and she wasn't a victim directly but she certainly was a victim indirectly in that you know, her father was taken from her um, now, mind you, that was the consequences of my choices. I'm not blaming the state. Uh, I, I do believe there, there needs to be consequences in order for people to make uh, rational decisions in the future. If you don't, if you don't have any any uh, any chance of, of loss, then you have no reason to change. Sure. But kids are wired for love. They need the affirmation of a mother and father. Uh, they need that guidance. And I remember when I was going through treatment that um, they asked me to do an assignment. And in that assignment, they asked me to write about the worst event that had taken place between myself and my victim. And I, I wrote about this, and I shared it in my group. And when I got through sharing, I was, I was an absolute puddle. I was, I was devastated. It, it was horrific to take and put my junk out on the table like that, but I was desperate. I didn't want to, I don't want to ever go back to where I came from. I don't want to ever do this again. And so I'm, 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 I'm radically obedient and, and, and willing to be ruthlessly honest. And so I throw it out there on the table. And the way the dynamics of my treatment group was set up was that we had a male and a female facilitator. And the female facilitator herself was a victim of rape. And she was, um, you think, oh wow, great! You know, that, you think maybe that's not the person to have in that group. But this woman, uh, she had it together. And as I'm just there, broken, uh, totally aware of my brokenness and sharing my brokenness and seeing my brokenness and sharing it with everybody else, I'll never forget her standing in front of me and saying, "John, this is like a cancer. You know, we can we can contain this. We can we can take and treat this, and we can move on." And it's not who you are. It's what you did. And there's so much about you that was a good father. This is just one piece of your life. It's not who you are. There's hope. And, you know, just going through that process uh, and hearing those words was such an inspiration to me. It continued to fuel the fire for me to, you know, to be really ruthless in my exposure of my past and dealing with my junk getting to the root of it. But, I, you know, to, to get back to your question, I realized that my daughter needed me. Um, she has my DNA. She, 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 was, she was my gift from God that I was responsible for. And if I didn't take responsibility for my stuff, I'd never be able to help her, you know, help her to take responsibility for her own. Uh, and so, you know, I just, I think that the children need uh, parents 
to bring their healthy parts to the table. You know, they need that positive influence from their parents. Uh, they certainly didn't need my negative. <laughs> I had fun with that. Sure. So, does that answer the question? Andy? You know, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but uh, so it was funny when I was doing treatment. It, the the day that the uh, facilitator, whatever the the treatment provider, he went over in class talking about uh, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. Right. And that day when I got in the car, there was a podcast that I was listening to, and it's kind of it's not really related to the subject, but it was called it's called Freakonomics, and that was the subject that day on that podcast, and the irony there, the coincidence of it being on the same day, so. What I wanted to what I wanted to follow up with then is, I don't know how many different uh, types of uh, offenders end up having to be mandated this kind of treatment that sex offenders go through, but it seems possibly related that it is it is not directly you know it's not intended to be CBT but it is CBT in a way that it is forcing you to think about consequences you know yin and yang cause and effect of how your actions go through and impact other people yes yeah well i think that i think the baseline of that is that without thinking that through you won't have any empathy you know you've got to realize that your choices do affect other people and you know we all get mad when someone steps on our toes um and apparently the person wasn't thinking about that as being the result of what they were going to do or or they didn't care, <laughs> which, you know, um, I, I myself went through, uh, you know, relapse prevention model that used CPT as his base. And uh, interestingly enough, uh, just this past weekend, I had a call from a family member who uh, struggles with uh, bipolar. And she's gotten very involved in um, a support group system. And she, you know, she and I were talking, and she said, you know, well, CBT is a big piece of what we we uh, apply for our our uh, basically regeneration. You know, basically having to stop and think. You know, there's triggers. There's, you know, what what you focus on is, is basically what you're going to see, and, and really everything begins with a thought, doesn't it? Andy? I would totally think so. Yeah. Otherwise, you're you're just a, a, a random uh, puppet that somebody else is pulling the strings on and yeah. have no control. <laughs> so, so actually, you know, when I, when I, before I even, before I entered into the long-term treatment that I, that I uh, went through, I had started with another group. This is, this is pre-sentencing. So I, I was fortunate to, to be able to start. And this was a group that the courts were leaning into heavily. And they, you know, my attorney said, you know, we'll go ahead and start, you know, the treatment over here and, and um, that was one of the first things I learned through that group, uh, even though it wasn't, it wasn't a good marriage uh, as it related to my, my long-term uh, treatment needs. Uh, the one thing I did learn was that uh, it was my choice, that there were, because I felt out of control. And that's what a lot of people are fearful of, right? You know, they think, you know, every, everybody who's committed a sexual offense is always going to commit another offense. And, you know, I was scared. You know myself. I, you know I've gotten out of control and, and pretty much felt powerless uh, over my own thoughts. And pretty much that was the that was the red iron they hit me over the head with that that really struck a chord and really uh, helped me to move forward. Was you mean this is a choice? 
that was so freeing to realize it was a choice. I, I could change. Certainly. That was the, the, the big deal for me. Certainly. I, I, I run through that type of philosophy often. It's if, if you put the blame or the credit somewhere else, then you don't get the credit or the blame for it. So take, right. take, take ownership of the thing so that you can say, yeah, I did it or geez, I did it and I shouldn't do it again. Yeah. Like Flip Wilson used to say, you know, the devil made me do it. <laughs> no, no, he didn't. There's a, there's another show that I listened to and uh, they're very left-leaning, which is which is fine unto itself. But they they do discuss about people committing crimes, and it they do then present the idea that says you are the sum of your decisions, and if you make bad decisions, then that makes you a bad person. And I've really been struggling with that statement. It's like, well, how many times do you then, you know, what's the ratio of doing? You know, do you do a hundred good things to one bad thing, but you're still counted as a bad person? And I don't know what yeah. those numbers are. I just, I, it just it was like, I don't know what to do with that particular, uh, that philosophy well, I, there. I, I've, I've got the answer for that one. Do you? And yeah, I do actually. Uh, so this actually came to me a few years ago and I, I really, it's been such a gift to so many over the years that since I've got this, uh, this clarity and that is, is that every perversion is just the wrong version of the right thing that's already in you. You can't pervert something that's not there. You can't make a bad decision without knowing what the right decision is. I need, I need something more. I need some, uh, some groundwork there. Well, okay. So, so let's just use speeding. Let's use speeding. Speeding is easy. Okay. So speeding like in a car, you mean? Yes, 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 yes. Okay. All right. So, and you're a habitual speeder. You like to speed everywhere. You don't mind getting tickets and okay. insurance rates. Okay. So there's there's the consequence, right? Uh, right. A greater consequence. You could you could be speeding and uh, have poor judgment because uh, all of a sudden you're up on a rain slick road and wham, you end up you know taking somebody out. Right. Uh, so so you you have the knowledge that you're speeding. You know that it has risks involved, and you know that um, that with those risks uh, come consequences if you happen to overshoot the mark that you perceive as being uh, acceptable. Because typically, any 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 time we're we're pushing past the limit, it's because we perceive that we have greater ability, we're unique, or uh, have greater capacity than what we do. Right. So, so what ends up happening is, is that um, your perception or your perversion is, is that you have greater capacity. It's not going to happen to you because you're a great driver. Right. And and you've got a radar detector. Oh. And you use and you use ways when you get there, <laughs> you know, checking off the boxes and telling you where the police are hiding. Now. Right. Um, and so you're doing all this stuff, and you're thinking, I got it made. I can do this. But the reality is, is that there's an eventuality that that perversion is going to show up in a way that's going to cost you. Okay. The choice is there for me to take my foot off the gas, accept that it's safer that way, less risk of hurting myself or somebody else. Uh, it's not, you know, 
certainly eliminate the risk of getting a ticket. Definitely. And it was a choice. Certainly. Now, it is fun. You know, it's like, okay, well, you know, so, but I like speed. I like to drive fast. Great. They have racetracks for that. They do. You go get in a go-kart and, you know, slam somebody off over the tires. I mean, it's, you know, um, there's ways to answer that call, so to speak. Sure, sure. um, You know, we're, it still comes back to our our thinking. Yes. Our thinking thinking is that uh, I've, I can justify this. Uh, you know, what is what is it a cop often asks you when you, if you get stopped? I'm sure you've never been stopped, so you probably wouldn't know. But oh, no, never, never. <laughs> it's like, where's the fire? Something wrong? What's going on? Why are you speeding? Do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> Do you know how fast you were going? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> are you conscious? <laughs> <laughs> Have you been drinking? Right. Uh, gosh. Yeah. So, I don't know. That was, uh, I, I've, I've found that so many people have been encouraged, particularly as it relates, if we can, I appreciate creating the exercise in that discussion. But when you get down to the point of where someone has committed a sexual offense, or, uh, for instance, this week I had an individual call me who I, uh, I knew things had gone left to center for him, and, and that, um, it's probably been dang near a year that I've been reaching out to this guy and he finally calls me. And as we're talking and I share that principle about, you know, perversion is just the wrong version of the right thing that's in you. Just, you know, it's a choice. You have the right stuff in you because what he, because he'd gone so far down, you know, gone back into really dark stuff and gotten, you know, really been despicable. Um, he, he felt hopeless. He didn't know if he could put it back together again. But the idea that, listen, it's there. I can get back to it. I just have to stop, you know, stop walking the wrong way. Turn around and go back to what you know works. And it was, it was very freeing for him. I'm a simplest, you know, that's, that's, really, that's really my gift. I, I don't, life is so complicated. I, there better be a simple answer. Sure, sure. Well, that would fall into Occam's razor. The one, the answer that makes the fewest assumptions is probably the right answer. Yeah. yeah. I've heard from attorneys and other legal professionals warning of pursuing grievances in court pro se. Yet you did it three times. Why did you go that route? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure I know what the answer is, but I, I, I wanted to ask. Well, you know. Um, my position was, is no one knows my case better than I do. And I had the good fortune of having uh, an attorney friend who stood with me through this process. He was not my attorney um, for my case. Uh, there was an attorney out of his firm that was uh, my representative. And I remember going through the process, and my attorney, I definitely needed the attorney in the, in the front end of this thing. But as I was going through, um, although I, I have to call it, I have to say I did make her crazy because I, I did let her know, you know, I'm I'm done living a lie. I don't want to ever go back. I'm not going to dis, discredit those. Uh, you know, I have wounded people. I've hurt people, and you know, it's not right to omit that from this process because they have a right to their their vindication. 
And uh, she was like, oh, God, no, don't do that. You know, and it's like, you don't understand. I, you know, I am willing to be accountable. And if I'm not willing to be accountable, then I am essentially saying that anything, anything that I'm saying is uh, not worth trusting. So I, like, I thought the answer that you were going to give was because of money. No, no, uh, no, I'm. I am not a money-based person. Now, I didn't have money, and I was certainly in debt. I mean, if you read the book, you probably caught more of the other things that were in there, too, like you know, ending up homeless and going bankrupt and losing two professional licenses and all that stuff. <laughs> but, but honestly, what it, what it, at the end of the day, yeah, part, I, I'm sure that was a piece of it there because um, I, you know, I already spent the rent. I already owed the attorney like three grand or something uh, after my court case was over. Um, but really what it came down to is I, I, I just felt, you know, I, I talked with my attorney friend and I said, look, this is what I'm thinking. And my baseline became this, Andy. I told the courts, if you're going to mandate treatment, then I'm going to ask you to validate it. And while I have the support system around me of supervision and my treatment group, I'm going to ask you to restore rights and privileges so I can have contact with my natural daughter. Because she's a victim in this. Not sexually, but because of the uh, you know, restrictions. So it's collateral damage. It's collateral damage, brother. That's right. And so, um, and the courts were, you know, they they gave they gave they restored rights to me as we went through. I went back to the courts and I said, uh, you know, because I believe in this treatment process and I believe in accountability, I. I want to ask the court to approve an affidavit that would be for disclosure to families who I would like to have as part of my support network in the community. And the court said, yeah, we'll accept that. You know, here's, you know, I, I crafted it up and I, you know, gave the proposal that I would take and give to the families. I would do a disclosure to the families. They would meet with the PO and then that would be, the court would say that would stand. And they, the court agreed to that. And I, we still have families to this day that, you know, 20 odd years later that, um, you know, they're still friends of ours. Because sure. They stood with us through that process. But it was all, you know, basically, I, I, I've always been, a, uh, ever since I, I got my head screwed on straight, I, it's like, okay, I don't have anything to fear if I'm, if I'm doing this for, for the right heart and I'm, and I'm not, you know, blowing smoke. Um, you know, my daughter was my goal. Being restored to my daughter, being there to to have uh, an impact, influence, and, and uh, to have be able to give her what she she deserved as a dad. That was my goal in going through treatment and going back to the courts. Honestly, and sure. Ended up ended up where the courts, while I was still under supervision, uh, I had finished treatment. I was still under supervision, um, and I, I went to court and I asked them for. Uh, the right to have unsupervised contact with my daughter, and they granted it. Right. And, I mean, that was a huge, huge deal. Huge. Excellent. And so, you know, I don't know if that would happen today because there's been so much more, you know, polluted water over the dam Yeah. Uh, by, the, by the media and, and such, but uh, I certainly was grateful. And I, and I certainly want to encourage people to, um, to think bigger, think out of the box, uh, think of themselves as being... You know, valuable enough to to uh, go back and have a voice. It, it wasn't that hard. It really wasn't that hard. I just had to learn a few terms and, and navigate through the process. And uh, 
That's re- that's really that. awesome. And learn how to say Urana. <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, we're definitely intimidated by the process of trying to go into that venue. It's not what normal people go through. Mm-mm. But if you go and watch it, you know, if you go sit in a courtroom for an afternoon, yeah, you can learn a lot of the vernacular and you learn a lot right. of the procedures. It's um, interesting. Well, hmm. Just saying. So, okay. So, you know, we met and we've talked a handful of times and I would, I would list you as a, at least at a minimum, a moderately optimistic person, (laughs) much more than that though, really, but I'm just, I'm kind of tone it down a little bit. So what I then want to know is how is it that can, you know, thinking back 20, whatever years when your adventure started, how do you then have a positive attitude? Uh, there seems to be a lot of press describing the impact against registrants that is in our favor, as well as criminal justice reform overall. But when you started your adventure, there probably wasn't too much to be positive about. Walk me through your state of mind and how you developed a positive mental attitude. Well, you know, when I was convicted, there was no registry. Um, there was, uh, you know, I, I was very fortunate. I was a short timer as far as the amount of time I had to serve. Uh, I was able to start uh, treatment while I was incarcerated, which was unheard of back then. I, I guess part of my my uh, enthusiasm comes from I, I've learned how to trust God uh, more than myself. And that was really easy back then because I was a mess. <laughs> so, um, and, you know, I... I even in uh, when you're asking the question, I I remember when I received. Uh, I lived in Maine at the time, and Maine did not activate the uh, Megan's Law and, and the registry until the the last stroke of the, the clock. And so, you know, I had been um, I'd gone through my, my process, get off supervision, and um, two years had gone by, no registry or nothing. You know, I was back in my community and and um, things are going well and I get this letter and it says uh, John R. Cordero uh, you will register for life as a sexually violent predator Jeepers. and if you don't we will take that as a felony offense and you will be subject to 5 to 10 years uh, period <laughs> with a new felony count <laughs> And I was like, and I, it, it just, I mean, I dropped to my knees. Uh, yeah. First of all, you know, being um, labeled a sexually violent predator. Um, and then hearing that that was a lifetime, lifetime conviction. Sure. Um, and, you know, honestly, Andy, you know, for me, I, I had, I, I came from a very dark place. I, I was a very very bad person. I was, I was a very sick person. And um, in, in my own personal walk, I found myself um, asking God either to take me out or deliver me, but that I couldn't continue living the way I was. And part of that was because I knew, for me, I'm not saying for everybody, I'm saying for me, at that point in where I was, in the darkness I was enveloped in, that I was scared for my natural daughter's life and she was the only thing I really loved and so um, and so I, I literally I remember getting on my knees and saying that that prayer and the next morning phone rang and a man 
who uh, I had a friendship with called Mass by one to go to men's prayer breakfast at his church. And I was like, well, that was pretty quick. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay, sure. I just thought, you know, that's just a little too coincidental. And I remember going to that that uh, prayer breakfast and being a, uh, a walking dead man. They were asking all the questions, you know, that people normally do. Who are you? Where are you from? What do you do? Do you have family? Blah, 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 blah. On the inside, I just, you know, I'm screaming, I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. I'm a, I'm a fool. I'm a liar. I'm, you know, a terrible person. And um, I didn't make any move towards my conversion at that point in time, but that being, being the dis- deviant that I was, I snuck into church the next day, <laughs> hit up in the balcony, and uh, if they asked for an altar call or anything, I, I don't recall that, but I remember walking out of there and saying to myself, this is what I need. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, so how do I get positive with all this registering? And I want to share a little bit more of my story, if you can, if you can give me a little bit more time. Oh, absolutely. Take all the time um, you need. So... You know, uh, I walked through that process uh, when I when I when I dropped to my knees after receiving that letter. Uh, I had been in my my walk as a, as a believer, as a, as a follower of Christ for several years at that point, and I thought, you know what, I'm not alone in this. I, I have my faith. I have my relationship with the Lord, and, and, and I'm going to be okay. And my first phone call was to, I had actually started, I was hired by the treatment providers that I went through treatment with. They hired me as a graduate peer consultant. I actually worked with them on developing a fast-track program for first-time offenders that were uh, basically getting uh, short-term sentences through the court. And, um, and I remember calling the uh, facilitator that I worked with and talking with her and just saying, oh, my God, what, what, what are these people going to do? This is, this, is, this is ridiculous. I mean, it's one thing when you hear about something. It's another thing when you experience it. Sure. You, know, you, can, read it, you can read about drowning, but until you have that experience of, of being unable to, you know, get your head above water or, you know, whatever, the riptide taking you out, it's... It's just a good story. Um, anyways, I, my optimism comes from what, from what I've experienced as being God's faithfulness. And I, I, I just feel as though there have been so many others who have gone before us that have proven that if we get in the battle, we can make a difference, that we have a voice, that we can, you know, I guess, I, I guess some of my hope in it came from, being, from a place where I was invited by parole and by the treatment providers I went through to join them for a roundtable with all of the different agencies and all of the, the different um, organizations and, and, and law enforcement uh, for a roundtable. It was really kind of hysterical because one of the POs that I had, I just really didn't appreciate him too much at all, uh, at any level. And uh, I walk in there that day, and that guy was the one who was running <laughs> that meeting. <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, you're kidding me. And I was, 
I was blown away because he said, uh, John Criero, man, I'm so glad you're here. Thank you for coming. And he took the time to acknowledge when he opened the meeting that I was present and that uh, I was one of his former clients and that, uh, that I had successfully completed treatment and that the treatment providers were present there today and that I worked with them and that, um, you know, that I, I was there to contribute as someone coming from that side of the table. And I was, I was so blown away. But I guess, I guess what it comes back to is there's, uh, in the Bible, there's a, a portion of Scripture that says, you have nothing to fear of the man who has the sword if you're not doing anything out of accord. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just, I'm just, I'm just going to continue to live it, live it to, you know, the way I should. I'm just going to trust that, that that word is true. Sure. And, you know, I just, my results of that, have, you know, and, you know, I, I, so, I mean, I've actually pursued getting involved with, uh, you know, RSOL uh, back almost six years ago now, and uh, I was fortunate to, to be allowed to join them in the, the process of restructuring all they did and uh, becoming who they are today. And, you know, I'm very proud of that. I'm sitting here at my desk with my certificate of recognition that they gave me when uh, I stepped down this last uh, this summer. Yeah, but, you know, it's it, it didn't all happen overnight. It ain't going to go away. Sure. It's not going to, it's not going to go away at all. If somebody doesn't take and stand in the gap. Yeah. And, and I just, I just know there are some good people out there. Even, even some of them are even politicians and, and lawyers. <laughs> as hard as that is to believe. I know. I know. <laughs> but it's hard for people to believe that a sex offender can change his spots too. You know? True. True. So as far as people who are not necessarily just going through your program, could you identify maybe an area or two that would make it would just go an unlimited amount of distance in making lives easier in bringing them back into society? Wow, that's a great. Well, I mean, so I'm, I'm assuming that you've seen success stories. So maybe there's something that you have the experience of seeing, hey, that thing wearing blue shirts every day, that was the thing that made them successful. Man, you took the words out of my mouth. You know, that's why I have so many blue shirts. Yeah, and that's my favorite color, so that works out. Okay, yeah, you know, um, things don't become functional until they're relational. And people are one of those things that really prosper from uh, having community, having relationships. Uh, you know, it's the baseline. Everybody thinks it's just about uh, men and women being together, but the word says, you know, it's not good for men to be alone. Right. It's essentially, it's not good for us to be isolated. It's not sure. good for us to be ostracized. It's not good for us to to uh, to be put in a position where uh, we're left to our best thinking because we're not very good at that uh, all the time. And uh, so we need the, the strength and the wisdom and the, the reflection of others to you know, make the best of this life. So that's been one of those things where the successes I see have come not from uh, self-made people, but from people who were willing to accept the fact that they couldn't do it by themselves. Sure. And so, you know, my encouragement would be uh, find community, find, find your tribe, you know, uh, Listen for the voice of those who who uh, are doing better than you, but but who you would like to emulate. 
right. I've always, I, I learned, you know, I, I went from being a uh, professional in, in real estate and, and in uh, insurance world. And uh, I started, when I first got out, I had six paper routes to support myself. Right. And then started doing handyman work. And then people were asking me to do projects bigger than my, my uh, scope of understanding. And I would just hire somebody better than myself and learn from them and pay myself as well. And uh, I've just, <clears throat> I find that if you will surround yourself with good people, you're going to have good results. And so that community piece is really important. That in itself is, is probably worth a, a ton of gold right there, just that. I find myself in that situation often where I don't know how to, how to solve a problem, how to attack it. And maybe the answer would be to, well, hire someone else to do it. And just the, it's almost like a path of least resistance, perhaps. But it also Absolutely. then takes a certain level of humility to say, hey, I don't know everything. I can't fix it. Yeah. And, you know, uh, pride is something you've got to get a, a grip on. You know, there's unhealthy pride and there's, there's healthy pride. Uh, I'm okay. proud of the fact that I can ask for help today. Okay. But, but my pride in my pre-existing condition was such that I couldn't ask for help. Hmm. And so, you know, I, I certainly want to encourage people to think about, you know, who, do, who can I trust and, right. uh, and understand something. Um, you may, you may make a bad call. You may trust somebody that wasn't trustworthy. Don't make that the end of the process. You know, that's on them. And, you know, it might be that, that you, you need to to discern or process things. Uh, you may be putting your trust based on uh, a skill set that's unrelated to your need. Right. So you, you know, you've got you to take a look at uh, who am I putting my trust in. But you need to learn how to trust, and um, it comes at a cost. So, you know, just... But another you know, thing with just our... Know, just know that, you know, uh, if you're going to love people, you're going to get hurt. If you're going yeah. to trust people, you know, and if you want to be trusted, it's going to get... You, there's going to be a cost involved. So just get over yourself and yeah. get on with the process. Um, but so many of the rules that are put against us is exactly that keeping you away from building that tribe of, you know, whomever those people are that you would associate with, whether that be curfews or the presence restrictions. It's just, it is almost impossible in certain situations for you to go find those people. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally hear what you're saying. It's it's one of the reasons I, I believe in the model that we have of, you know, having a, a healthy culture and a community where our guys are not isolated, where they, you know, where they're able to, to have the, uh, the benefit of others around them to, you know, draw strength from and get encouragement. And um, it always struck me odd. I, I remember when I was going through treatment that, <laughs> parole and probation, all those guys, you know, they'd say, well, you can go to treatment, but afterwards you can't hang out with those guys. Yeah, sure. It's, it's okay for us to hang out with them and talk about the things that we did bad. But if we want to go have a burger and, and hang out and figure out what we're going to do right together, that's not okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, there, there's so many um, convoluted, uh, you know, it's like, okay, well, first of all, what they're doing is they're, they're, uh, what do they call that? Uh, 
they're profiling and they're, you know, it's like, hold up here. You know, I just had this situation recently within our ministry. We've, we've one of the first guys we ever had was a federal parolee. And as I mentioned earlier, and uh, now the feds won't, won't let any of their guys come because they'd be living with other felons. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Okay, let me get this right. So in, in almost 13 years, none of my graduates have ever reoffended sexually, and you don't want to send your guys here. Why? Right. <laughs> you know? If you want to talk about how peer pressure, like, you know, don't hang out with those kids, Jill Johnny, you know, they're going to they're gonna send you down a bad path. Well, you've got a reputation of having a bunch of guys that are doing the right thing. Why wouldn't they send everybody your way to show them how to live right? Well, it came back to the liability thing. Talking to the supervisor, he... He's like, well, you know, this is what the law says. And the, if the judge wants to let them come there, they can go back to their judge and get him you know, to agree to that. And they can they can go to, to new name ministries as long as the judge signs off on it. So we had to you know, write write these guys back and let them know that that's what, what they're going to have to do. Uh, in the meantime, I had I had three beds available for these guys to come into our program and they could have been back uh, out of the taxpayers. Yeah, uh, right. You know, off, the, off the rolls of the taxpayer. Uh, contributing back to the community because we get all of our guys' jobs easily. Um, you know, they could have been contributing to the community and getting the help that they need and, and reestablished and with their family. And you know, um, anyways. So you have you have uh, you have connections in with the local job market to help those guys get jobs. We do. Yeah, we've been very fortunate over the years. Uh, most of the places where our guys go to work, uh, they they are made aware of the fact that. You know, this is this, these guys are part of our ministry, and that this is this is what we're about. And uh, they like that we've, we've actually gone through a vetting process for them. That they know that we're not we're not a bed filling facility. That we're looking for guys who actually want to to change their lives, and so they know that uh, hey, they're committed for a year. Chances are they're going to stick around longer. They're going to be here on time, and they're going to they're going to be a better quality worker. So interesting. Uh, yeah, so it's it's been very fruitful for us, and um, yeah, and it just keeps expanding. Basically, now I've got now I now I have employers who are saying, you know, I, I have I have openings, send me guys. It's like, well, I don't have guys, uh, you know, to get here. I'll send them. Yeah. So. Do you have uh, people from other communities contacting you on on using you as a model? We have, and uh, you could it's franchise very interesting it. Interesting over the years. Well, we've talked about that. And, um, more, more from the place of we just want to see reentry prosper as a whole. Uh, it is a it's a, a, uh, a severe need, uh, not ju- not just for sex offenders either, but for sure, uh, sure, substance abuse issues, people coming out that have you know other issues. But yes, we've had people come to us over the years, and they they think because they have a house. And they, they do prison ministry that they ought to be doing something. Uh, I said, you know, if you don't have a calling to actually do this kind of uh, this kind of work, because it's it's you're dealing with people's lives. You're dealing, yeah. you know, you're not dealing with people who are incarcerated who are going to perform at a certain level so they can get out. You're dealing with people who've gotten out and now have a lot of significant choices to make. And you need to be prepared to help them make the best choices, and you need to be willing to protect everybody else in that ministry or that home, that reentry facility, um, and not let them uh, be the tail that wags the dog. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, when we sit down and talk to them about really what, what all goes into, you know, running a, uh, a good, solid, healthy community, uh, most people, uh, they don't come back. Uh, but the ones that come in with the right mindset, realizing that what they really want to see happen is see people's lives transform, um, we've, we've got several that we're working with that have, uh, you know, women's, uh, we've got one that's just opening up now, we've got others that are, that we've met with, we've, you know, we, and we don't charge anything, we share our, our policies, our procedures, but we have to, we let them know that stuff is words, and you're welcome to go ahead and cut and paste and put your, <laughs> your name, what have you, but if you don't understand the, the dynamics of these policies, Everything that we've done has come out of the experience of being blown up, burnt, uh, you know, just ripped off. Um, and, and it's also come from a place of having a right heart toward restoring, redeeming, uh, releasing men into their greatness, calling out their greatness, helping them to see those perversions and to be accountable for those things and to get the right version online. Um, and so we... You know, we tell people this is a lot more involved than just you know giving them a, a hot and a cot and yep. getting them on the on the road to uh, getting their own place. There's sure. a place for that. There are people that do not want what, what we offer, but if there are people out there that that would like to to connect with us. They can just go out to our website and and uh, you know contact us, and we'll be happy to visit with them and and see if we can help them. I wasn't sure if you wanted to specifically plug it. I don't have any problem if you want to share that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, I, and I, and I'm not. <laughs> it's just more more time out of my schedule. Sure. Uh, you know, we're we're not charging people for that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's newnameministries.org. Just okay. www.newnameministries.org and uh, just reach out to us. And you know, if you take a look at the website, you'll you'll get a pretty good taste of, of what we're about. Uh, we don't have our application available online, but we have a pre-application request form and character reference forms. So if anybody hmm. listening to this program thinks that their their loved one would be interested in, in what we're about, then you know, they can certainly print off that pre-app request form and, and character references and send them to that individual and let them make that decision. And then we'll send them our 14-page application. <laughs> yeah. We're pretty serious. I mean, it's um, when you're investing in people, you need to make sure you have people who, who are going to respect that and, and not uh, use you to just sure. get addressed. And that happens. Probably, probably about 30% of the people that we get, even though we're very stringent and work very hard to, to uh, you know, get those folks out, uh, they, they, still, they still can say whatever they, they, they believe is going to get them in. And some Certainly. people really believe they're... Some people really believe they're all that in a bag of donuts, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, yep. and uh, they get out and they go, that's not really who I am. It's not what I thought I was going to, you know, be required to do, even though we're pretty good at laying it out. But yeah, yeah, they're, they're, you know, either way, whether it's somebody who wants to do reentry, uh, we've had people come to us who thought they wanted to do reentry and they, they leave and they go out and they take a lot of the principles that we uh, utilize within our ministry, and it, it changes, it transforms their their whole organization, their process to their community, and it's and it's been very fruitful. I mean, I still get people calling me, go, man, we're you know, 
We learned so much that day. We think of you often. We're so grateful we came out and spent time with you. Thank you for the time you gave us. And, you know, here's what we're doing now with what you gave us. And so, you know, whatever we can do to help. Sure. So I have this deck of 300 random questions, and I'm going to pick a random question. Wow. You, you okay with that idea? Yeah, sounds fun to me. All right. As long as it's not trivial pursuit, man. No, 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 no. No, these no, these are totally open-ended questions. They're just uh, you know, why are there so many kinds of dogs? Whatever. So, I'm going to hit the random button and we'll see where it lands. You ready? I'm ready. All right. So, the question is, which idea has been the most powerful in all human history? And you have you have 3 seconds to answer. In all of human history, yes. the idea that we are created in the image of God. Wow, that was too easy. That okay, didn't. Ta- that did. No. Okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll hit random <laughs> again. No, I'm just kidding. No, if that's your answer, that's great. So, John, I really want to thank you for joining me. It was great to spend time with you this afternoon. Um, do you have? So, you gave your website. Is do you do you want to give an email address to, or just have them go through the website? Yeah, just thank you. Just go through the website. It's, Excellent. Just hit the contact tab and. And yep. and the URL again was? It is www.newnameministries.org. Outstanding. John, I can't thank you enough. This is really great. I appreciate it.